What would it feel like to be free? Do you constantly try and make changes in your life but always slip back into old ways? I used to be constantly frustrated by my lack of willpower. What I never knew is that there was a reason why I could not control myself and that there are processes that you can follow to regain your freedom. I interview some of the most knowledgeable and compassionate minds talking about breaking all varieties of bad habits and how to actually live a joyful and fulfilling life. Listen to the show and hit subscribe to free yourself from the shackles of the mind. And if you find some benefit, please share it with a friend and let's make the world a better place together. Hi guys, welcome to the Break the Chain podcast. I'm here today with Tim Lodgen. Uh, Tim is a mixed martial artist, a boxer and an ex-US Marine who now has an incredible nine months in recovery after a 27-year uh, addiction and nearly taking his own life. Uh, Tim, it's a huge honor to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it and I look forward to our conversation. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm really grateful that you reached out. Um, I've heard your story and... Um, I think it's powerful because I think you, I, 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 I don't know if you're aware, but like, I think you're someone that people would look up to, um, just on some, as a, uh, maybe on a superficial level, someone who's kind of like quite a, uh, you know, uh, macho, masculine, um, tough, <laughs> tough bloke kind of thing that mo like most guys look up to that sort of thing. So when someone has a, uh, inspirational story it's so powerful um i was wondering if you could share your story with us please yeah absolutely um so i i'll, I'll do uh how it was before during and after so um you know i grew up in a normal family uh my mom and my dad uh you know, they, neither one of them were drug addicts or or alcoholics um my father was a police officer for 36 years, so he was, you know, a pretty straight and narrow guy. My mom was a vice president of a company, so she uh, she worked all the time, went to college, and, you know, it was a pretty normal family. Uh, my dad did leave when I was only seven years old, so I grew up basically just with my mom and my brother. Um, and that did have a, have a major impact on me in my life. And... Um, you know, I didn't start doing drugs or alcohol until I got into high school. And um, the first time I drank was in ninth grade. We had a party and uh, I got really drunk. And, and, and I mean, I was so sick the next day and I didn't touch alcohol again until my senior year of high school. So from ninth grade all the way to 12th grade, I didn't drink. But for some reason in my senior year, I picked up drugs, I picked up alcohol, and I went to the races. I mean, I, I was drinking every single weekend, and then sometimes it, it led to drinking before school, sometimes after school, and, and definitely all weekend long. Um, I found myself at the end of my senior year, you know, my I didn't have good enough grades to go to college, and a lot of my friends had gotten into heroin, and... Um, I never touched it. I never did it. And I, w I really wasn't wanting to go down that road. So I decided to join the Marine Corps. So I went into the military right out of high school. And mm. joining the military, already being a drinker, that, that amplified by 10. Because once we were done training or we were done doing things that we had to do in the Marines, as soon as we got off at 4 o'clock, we were at the bars. Yeah. We were stayed to the bar until it closed, and then we would be right back in formation at 3 a.m. that next morning, still drunk, um, running three miles, doing all our calisthenics, doing anything that they asked us to do. But it was an ongoing thing for two and a half years where we just – we worked out, we ran, we drank. And think, that's what we did the entire time was, um, I was in the Marines. You said it was like a badge of honor, um, being able to, who could get the most wasted and then get up and still do it all. It was like something to be proud of. Yeah. I mean, and like, um, a lot of our sergeants that were training us, we would see them at the bars mm -hmm. and they were like, just as long as you're in formation at three o'clock, we don't give a shit what you do. Just make sure you're there at three o'clock in the morning and make sure you're doing what we tell you to do. And it, and it didn't matter, you know, drinking and being in the military, regardless of the branch, I think it goes hand in hand. 
Um, you know, at 18, 19, and 20 years old, when you're not really allowed to drink, because in, in the United States, you have to be 21. Well, if you're in the Marines or Army or whatever, their motto is, if you're old enough to take a bullet for the country, you're old enough to have a cold beer. Yeah. So they would give us beer no matter what. We just couldn't stand there and have it in our hand. So we have to take a drink of it and sit it down at the table and then take a drink and sit down at the table just in case authorities or somebody would walk in. But they allowed us to drink. Yeah. So it didn't stop. It it, it wasn't like they were trying to not let us drink. They almost was like, you earned it. You can have a cold beer. And uh, and we took advantage of that fully. Fully. And uh, so when I got out – I was 20 years old and, uh, you know, it taught me, it really took a toll on me because, um, throughout my drugging and my drinking, I also have bipolar disorder and, uh, I wasn't taking my medicines. And when I got out, I fell into a really deep depression. Um, so bad that, uh, you know, at 20 years old, I found myself with my stepfather's gun in my lap. And uh, I was contemplating using it. And luckily, I had a girlfriend that came over and helped me to, to put that aside. And, and, and I thank God I didn't do it then. Um, but I, I, I was in that deep of a depression at 20 years old that I wanted to end it because I got out of the Marines and I drank more than I did in the Marines. And I drank more than I did when I was a senior. And I think that has to do with the, the trauma that I went through in the Marine Corps. And I didn't know how to deal with it. So my solution was drink, 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 drink. Um, and the drug part, I really wasn't like into big drugs. I mean, I smoked pot and um, I did some LSD and stuff in high school, but I wasn't in, I didn't do heroin and cocaine, nothing like that. I just liked smoking pot and drinking. And uh, so I didn't really think my drug situation was a big deal because smoking pot really wasn't like I didn't lose jobs over smoking pot, but I lost a shit ton of jobs drinking, you know, so that didn't really bother me. But, um, you know, as I got older and I met my wife, um, we started dating about a year after I got out of the Marines and uh, about two years after that, we moved in together. And two years after that, we had my daughter, my first daughter. And at that time, we had a nice house. I had a job. She had a job. And uh, everything was going good, but I was still drinking at least four days a week. And when I say it, when when I mean when I'm drinking, it's not like I had two or three beers. I would have six to 12. You know, I I wouldn't just have one or two to, to relax at the end of the night. I would have six to 12 to get drunk or to pass out. It wasn't a normal drinking experience. And I didn't realize that because a lot of the people that I hung out with drank the same way that I did. So for me, it was kind of normal. Hey, let's just get a bunch of beer and drink until we throw up or get sick or pass out. It's not only until I, you know, just last year of sobriety that I, I realized that I was drinking on an alcoholic level my entire life. You know, like my, my wife could have a bottle of wine downstairs and it would sit there for six months. And she would sip on it and maybe not open it again for two or three months. You know, that's a normal person. Yeah, I don't understand that one. (laughs) No, I I, I never – I was like, you're just going to let it sit there? Like it's been in the refrigerator for a month and a half. She goes, yeah, I don't want it. That shit would have been gone that night. Like that bottle was in there. It would have been gone the next day. Like there's just no doubt about it. Um, but I, I found myself, you know, my late twenties into my thirties, I was drinking, it, it got to be every single day. And, uh, and it was six to 12 beers every single day. And, uh, you know, even, even at my, my, my peak of, of my mixed martial arts career, when I was, I, I mean, I was fighting on TV, I was fighting at these large casinos and, and New Jersey and Philadelphia and, and, uh, as soon as I got done training or as soon as I got done fighting, it was drinking time. Like mm. I, none of that ever left me. It was all still part of my life. I never, never pushed drinking away. 
because I thought I had it. I was like, well, if I could still train and I could still go to, go to work, I could still drink. Well, little did I know it was affecting all aspects of my life the entire time. I was just blind to the fact. You know, I, I thought it was normal because that's what I've been doing for so long. You know, little did I know that it was affecting everybody around me, my friends, my family, my jobs, my children. And, uh, you know, last, let's say, 45, so four years ago, um, I had had about seven surgeries from the, all the mixed martial arts and the weight training, and, and, and I had to have seven surgeries within like, two years. And the, the doctors were prescribing me pain pills mm. month monthly for like four years straight. So I got addicted to Percocets and oxycodones, and and I was taking them every single day without fail. But I was drinking on top of it, and that I makes actually messy. yeah, <laughs> and it actually scared me. It really scared me because I was like. I know this is not a good combination. I know a lot of people die from taking pain medicine and drinking. And it, and it actually did scare me. And one night, uh, you know, I, 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 took, I took 18 5-milligram Percocets. And uh, I drank a 12-pack of beer. And I asked, I asked God to not wake up the next day because I couldn't stop. I just wanted the pain to go away, and um, I woke up. That was the last day I took pain medicine. I, I, I woke up, and I was like, holy shit, I, I'm supposed to be here for something. Heaven forbid I stopped drinking, right? But I stopped taking the pain medicine, and it's been six years now. I haven't taken any pain medicine whatsoever, no matter what. I'll take my ibuprofen and some Advil, and I'll call it a day. Um, but I woke up from that the next day, and I kind of had an awakening a little bit, but not a lot because I didn't stop drinking. I just stopped taking the pain medicine, which is a, a small a small win in, in my recovery, but um, it wasn't enough to, to to make me stop drinking. So my drinking got really escalated the last two years of my drinking because the beer wasn't doing anything for me anymore. I mean, I went from six to 12 to sometimes drinking 18 beers a day and the beers that I were buying wasn't doing it. So I switched to IPAs and lagers, the heavier, the high, high, uh, volume alcohol. And, uh, I found myself that really wasn't doing it. So I switched over to fireball whiskey. So I would go and get these little miniatures of whiskey and I'd start shot, you know, throwing them down. And uh, it started off with like four or five a day on top of my beer. And then I finally said, you know what? I'm not going to drink beer anymore. I'm just going to drink whiskey all day. So instead of getting a big bottle of whiskey, because then it was kind of funny, I, I would know that. I was drinking that much whiskey, so I would get the miniatures. So I could drink them and throw them away, and I would forget about how much I was drinking that day. It was like I was playing an own, an own trick in my mind, mm. well, you're not drinking that much. But at the end of the day, I was drinking 25 miniatures a day. And I measured it one time. One of those miniatures is two and a half shots. So two and a half shots times 25. I was drinking 55 to 60 shots of whiskey a day. Fuck. And it was horrible. I would wake up and take two or three shots before I went to work. I didn't drink at work, luckily, and thank God, because I'm a carpenter. and We use power tools all day and stuff like that. And I did never find myself drinking at work. But I would drink a couple before work. And as soon as three o'clock came and I punched out, the first place I stopped before even going home was the liquor store. And I would get a sleeve of Fireball, which is 10 of them, and I would shoot down four or five of them before I even left the liquor store parking lot. And I had a half an hour drive home. By the time I got home, I would only have two of those left. So I'd stop at the liquor store and get 10 more. 
And that was a daily occurrence for two years straight. And uh, last year, February of last year, um, I had gotten a brand new truck and uh, I I left the liquor store and I hit something and I still don't know what I hit. I really honestly don't. I couldn't tell you. But uh, the next morning I woke up and I told my wife, I'm going to go get some milk and some water. And uh, she said, go look at your truck in the driveway. And I said, what what do you mean? So I go out there and, and... my right tire's hanging off, my side view mirror's hanging off, and I'm like, what the hell? And she's like, you don't remember, do you? I'm like, no, I have no recollection. She goes, Tim, you could have killed somebody last night. She's like, you've got to do something about this. This is getting out of control. She's like, you can't stay here. you got to go figure this out. you got to go someplace and figure it out. So uh, I called my buddy. And I said, hey, can I come to your house for a little bit? My wife doesn't want me home. He said, yeah, sure, man. Come on over. We'll hang out. So I go to his house, and his idea to forget everything was to go to the bar and drink some more. So I was like, yeah, let's go, man. Let's go to the bar. We'll drink some more. So we sat there. We drank for a couple hours, did some shots. And on the way leaving the bar, I rear-end somebody in my truck. This is the day after I already hit something, which I don't remember. And... uh I get out and I look at the guy and and he's like, I'm okay. My car's okay. And I was like, okay, well, I'm out of here. And I took off. Because at that point I was drunk and I knew if the cops were coming, I was going to get locked up. And uh, things were not going to be good. So I I took off. And, uh, you know, I go to my friend's house and I'm like, I can't stay here, man. I got to figure this out. I mean, this shit's getting bad. I can't control it. So I left. And I went and sat in my truck for two days at, at one of those parking rides. And uh, I drank for 48 hours, nonstop. I didn't eat. I just sat in the back of my truck and I just drank. And I turned my phone off for that, that full four, 48 hours. Because I didn't want to talk to nobody. I didn't want to deal with anything. I just pretty much just wanted to like wallow in my sorrows and beat myself up. And do what we do as as addicts, you know, seclude ourselves and, and not not reach out for help. And uh, after 48 hours, I turned my phone on. It was 7 after 10. At 9 after 10, my childhood friend Brandon calls me. Two minutes later, after being off for two days, and he says, Lodging, what the F are you doing? And I said, I'm cold, man. I'm hungry. I'm tired. He said, good. That's what you need. He's like, I talked to your mom, your wife. We have a plane ticket ready for you. He's like, get on that plane tonight, and I promise you, you'll get back everything that you've ever lost. So I said, okay, okay. I hung up the phone. And I still really honestly wasn't sure that I wanted to go to rehab. I knew I should. And... uh you know, about 20, 30 minutes go by, and my wife calls me, and she says, hey, where are you? I said, I'm sitting in my truck. She said, please come home. She said, I talked to Brandon. We got a plane ticket for you. You're supposed to go to rehab tonight. So I go home. I take a shower. I couldn't eat nothing because I've been drinking for two days. And uh, I take a shower, and I get out, and I'm sitting on my bed. And, you know, and I start thinking about just – everything that I've done and all the people that I hurt and all my depression and, and, and just things I never dealt with. And, uh, and I go downstairs into the basement and I throw a rope around the, the, the rafters of my basement and I put it around my neck and I stand up on a bucket. And uh, I guess like three minutes go by and my wife comes downstairs and she looks at me and, and she's like, what are you doing? And I said, I just want the pain to stop. I said, I can't, I can't stop drinking. And she said, please, Tim, please get down. She said, you don't know what this would do to your children. She's like, you can get help. She's like, please get down and everything will be okay. So I, I got down and and I I fell to the floor and I sat there and I cried for like five, ten minutes. 
I get up and I, and I come upstairs and I call my friend and I'm like, hey, I was like, I'm ready. I was like, I can't do this anymore. I said, I'm going to kill myself. And I said, I don't want that. I said, so I, I'm ready to go to rehab. So he said, okay. He said, uh, just one, do me one thing. When you get to the airport, you call me after you get past the security. You call me after you check in your bags and I know you're getting on that plane. He said, I don't want you to get to the airport and catch a cab out of there and take off. So uh, I get there and I check in everything. And I call him. I say, hey, I'm, I'm sitting here. I got about 30 minutes for the plane takes off. And the only thing he says to me is, I'm proud of you. I love you. Everything is going to be all right. And I hung up the phone. And for the first time in my life, this overwhelming feeling of hope came over my body. It was a warm feeling that I've never felt in my life. And something in my head told me it's going to be all right. It was the best feeling I've ever felt in my entire life. And at that moment, at 44 years old, I realized that I could recover and I could get help. And that this was the time in my life that that was going to happen. And it was the best, one of the best days of my life. That is absolutely amazing. Like, you know, after I, I was a active addict for about 10 years. And it's like you say, when you're in that, it's like a closed loop, isn't it? Everything around you is using, you know, everything is either drinking or for me, it was using drugs. All my friends were doing it constantly. It was just normal. It was normal to sniff ketamine for me on, you know, on Monday morning. It was no, you know what I mean? Like that's totally, that's just standard. Everyone I know is doing it. So to then all your memories are to do with it all your thoughts are to do with it so then when you try and actually transition from that world back to sober life you don't know what the hell recovery means do you know what i mean but like just to like from yeah. using to not using when all everything that your mind's saying is just use and to, to, to be able to make that transition and if after 27 years i can't even imagine what that's like um how on earth did you do that I th and I'm not, it's going to sound weird, but it, it became easy for me um, because I finally made that choice to get help. I finally wanted it. So the moment that I finally said I need help and I accept the help, I was willing to do whatever it took to get better. I was willing to go to all the meetings. I was willing to do all the step work. I was willing to talk to my counselor, my psychologist, my psychiatrist. I was willing to get on my bipolar medicines and to, for them to actually work because any other time I was on the medicines, I was drinking and drugging. So your, your medicine doesn't work when you're drinking or drugging. So I accepted everything. And I think by acceptance and, and allowing the change to come, it, ma it has made it easier for me. Um, I was ready for a new life. I was ready to not wake up hungover. I was ready to not wake up not remembering saying nasty things to my family, my wife, my friends. I was ready to not steal and cheat and lie anymore. Um, you know, 20, I'm 45, 27 years is, is three quarters of my life, man. Like I was only sober from the time I was born until I was 16, you know, past that I've been drinking and drugging. So it has been the majority of my life, but being sober now next week, I have 10 months and I can finally start to remember what it was like to love myself again and, and to enjoy waking up in the morning. And enjoy, you know, actually looking outside and seeing the sun and, and like just just the tiny little things in life that I took for granted. You know, I, I enjoy waking up not hungover and ready for the day where before I, I would dread getting up and going to work. I would dread having to take a shower, you know, and 
I just I am so grateful to have a second chance in life. I was I was on the verge of killing myself, whether it be through suicide or drinking, because when I got to rehab, my, my liver was four times what it should have been. And they told me if I were going to continue to drink like that for the next two years, I would not have made my to 48 to 50 years old. I would have died. So either way, I was going to die from my from my addiction. I have a second lease on life and I'm not wasting it. I'm coming for everything that alcohol took for me and then some, and I'm not going to stop. And I'm the only one that can stop me. And even I can't stop me at this point. I don't want to stop. And I'm going to try to help as many people as possible because I don't want people to think that they're suffering alone. You know, this, the disease of addiction makes you feel alone, makes you feel like nobody understands how hard it is to be an addict. And, and nobody could possibly understand the pain when it's furthest from the truth. We all understand what's going on. You know, there's a lot of us that understand what's going on. And if more of us spoke about it, if more of us told our stories, the more people we could help and the more people we could possibly get into recovery. And isn't that what it's all about is helping each other? I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you to all of our listeners and let you know that there's a new way that you can support the show. We've set up a Patreon account which has three different tiers. You can donate either £5 a month, £10 a month or £20 a month. If you choose the £20 category, we'll send you a T-shirt or some other merchandise. Also, if you're struggling with anything, please don't hesitate to reach out by clicking on the link below and contacting us through social media. Please enjoy the rest of the show. I, th I think that's one of the amazing things with you know people telling their stories is you don't think it's possible to get you know to get sober. You don't know how to do it, and you don't like, like you say wanting to do it. That's definitely the the biggest thing, and how you make how you can make yourself want to get sober. That that for me was the hardest part. I had to get away from it because I couldn't make myself want to get sober. So I was like, I've either got to get away now. Otherwise, this is going to just drive me into the ground real fast. So I just need to go and learn how to want to be sober, you know, rather than I had to get away from it. Um, yeah. But when you hear people tell their stories over and over again, it does give you hope, doesn't it, that it's possible when you hear people just go through hell and then get sober. It's like, well, they have done it, so I can do it as well. How is, you know, the, the how is... I, <sighs> I guess, I guess you know, like with things like a 12-step program and stuff, people don't know much about it. And if you actually read it, it still doesn't make sense until you actually do it. What was your experience of doing the 12 steps like? Uh, at first, I didn't... Uh, at first, I really didn't understand them. Um... And when I got into rehab and uh, we started doing the 12 steps, I'm not going to lie to you. The first first couple times I read them, I was like, oh, this is just a, a bunch of bull crap. Until I actually started doing the research and they made us write down the 12 steps. They made us write down gratitude lists. They, they made us actually be accountable for the, the steps that they were showing us. And then I started to realize that, oh, my God, this, this isn't just steps to get you sober. It's steps to help you become a better person mm. Be because it really does affect your life a, a lot more than just staying sober. It helps you to learn to understand people, forgiveness, making amends. Um, it, it gets you in touch with your higher power. Um, it just really does give you a basis on how to live your life differently. You know, um, being sober and being in recovery is, is two different things. I mean, you can be sober and not work the steps and be a miserable person. But if you apply the steps that they're giving you, the, the, the layout on how to live your life and you actually apply them, it makes life easier. 
You know, you can, your perspective on things change. You can deal with things easily. You can let things off your, roll off your shoulders a lot easier. You know, you don't hold on to things a lot like you used to and let it weigh it down. Um, you know, I, I didn't believe in a higher power for a very, very long time. I, I'm not going to say I did. I didn't. Until all this stuff happened to me this last year and going into rehab and having these experiences that I can't explain. It didn't come from me. It didn't come from a passerby. It came from someplace, and I don't know where it is. And if I didn't acknowledge it was from a higher power, then, man, I, 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 that would be a shame not to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. I now know that I'm not alone, and, and something is watching over me. I don't know what it is, where it is, but something out there is watching over me. I had very similar, um, you know, experiences going from someone who was very atheistic and then some amazing things happened in my life. You know, like I, I, what I found amazing was um, e- even though I didn't do the 12-step program, after I um, got into recovery through, through a spiritual process, I realised, and, and even before I actually got into that specifically, I realised that I'd started working most of the steps just through just just naturally like it came through the people who i'd been listening to uh on you know on youtube or the books that i'd been reading um you know in all these different ways and i realized that so many things in the in the 12 steps i'd actually started working you know i'd like gratitude something i realized that i needed to cultivate um amendments um i I realized i needed to stop lying I, i needed to you know, try and start making up for all the shitty things that I'd done. You know, all those things kind of came, it came from like in, internal direction as well. It, it's amazing. So, you know, when, when I actually, because I, you know, the idea of like going to meetings or going to rehab for me would have been just like, no way. But then when, once I went through that process and realized, shit, I've done all this stuff, that this this stuff's right. You know, I, re- I realized that right. because I've, I've already done it. And now if I had to go and do that, I'd be like totally on board with it. But yeah, it's that in that beginning, like, oh man, I don't want to go and do something like that. Do you know what I mean? No, yeah. I mean, and I was scared to go to rehab. I mean, I'd never been to rehab before and I, I truly was very nervous to go. But like I said, once I had that experience at the airport, when I got to rehab, I was I was open arms to whatever they needed me to do. I mean, we did seven meetings a day for 32 days and uh i didn't miss one meeting i did everything they told me to do i wrote down all the all the homework they told me to do and uh i think it was my willingness to want to be sober is what made it easier for me than a lot of people um because you got to want it. You really have to want it. You can't go to rehab because the court sent you or your parents sent you or your wife or your husband sent you. You have to go to get the help because you want to get the help. You know, I, I could talk to you until you're blue in the face and tell you how great my life is and look how much has changed and this, that, and the other. And you can listen to all these motivational things on YouTube or all these podcasts. But until you truly want it for yourself – it's like falling on deaf ears sometimes. I mean, I I have a cousin right now who's dealing with addiction and my aunt calls me. She's like, can you please talk to him? Can you please talk to him? And I'm like, aunt Deb, I'm like, I can call him. I can talk to him, but does he want to get sober? Well, he says he does, but he keeps relapsing. I said, well, I, I can talk to him. I said, but you know, and I know, we can't send him to a rehab if he doesn't want to be there. It's not going to work for him. You have to want this process. And a lot of people just don't want it. Do you think there's any value in, in well, first thing is when, when you go, even if you don't want to, you get sober for a bit, hopefully. <laughs> um, and and yeah. you have that little, bit of, that little bit of clarity and you learn, you know, you learn some, tools and you learn a process and you kind of like okay this is what it means to recover 
could come at a really expensive price tag <laughs> learning those things to go out and relapse again it's a fucking waste of money for your family and stuff but it could be like i mean could give you that little bit of like okay now when when i'm ready this is what i need to do i mean that's the only that's kind of the value i can see in going before you're ready to go but just to kind of get a bit of um so you know sometimes that few months of sobriety or a month or 30 days or whatever it might be might be the you know a real make or break for a lot of people yeah yeah it is and, and there's people in rehab that have been there eight, nine, ten times. And I'm mm. like, I'm like, how? How do you come back here eight, nine, ten times? And they would just look at you. But, oh, well, four of them was court ordered. And one of them, my mom wanted me to come. And, and uh, you know, one time, you know, uh, my dad wanted me or whatever. I'm like, well, when are you coming for you? Like, when, when does, when do you want to be here? Oh, well, who the hell wants to be your rehab? And and that's the truth, though, because if if they don't want to be there and they don't want it, mm. yeah, they'll get clean for 30 days. But if they don't want it, that just means they're clean for 30 days. And now they can go back out and rip roar again because their body's nice and healed up and clean and they ate yeah. good. And they got their weight back and and, and they, they can go hit it hard again. And unfortunately, yeah. a lot of those people, when they get leave there, end up overdosing because they have been clean for 30 days. And they go out and do the same thing they were doing before they went in, and their body can't handle it. Yeah, I had that experience. Uh, Did you yeah, really? I had a pretty, I had a pre- well, I, I, not, it wasn't. I didn't go to rehab, but I went to Europe <laughs> and, and went yeah. on like a snowboarding holiday, you know, and just. So it wasn't like I was trying to get sober. I was just off enjoying myself somewhere else, but I couldn't get drugs there. And uh, and then when I came back, I just hit it hard, and I actually. Um, just got this crazy pain and like my gallbladder all fucked up and and I, and I just ah. got, and I hit my pain threshold and blacked out while I was walking and just like ripped my lip off and knocked my tooth what? out and uh, yeah yeah um, you know because I I just um, I just hit it like uh, like like I used like I'd had three months totally clean and and then I hit it like I'd no, had had no break and yeah my body wasn't up for it um, I had a couple like that and then I had another one where. Yeah, short, shortly after that, very, it might have even been within a month of that, I uh, overdosed in the back of my van. But I was in France at a big rave um, in the middle of nowhere, a big illegal thing, and uh, overdosed in the back of my van. And my girlfriend was a nurse, but I got in my van and drove into the corner of a field and tried not to die for 24 hours. Oh and my it was, God. It was, horrend- it, was horrend- it was horrendous. Yeah, yeah, I just thought about that. I don't think I've ever spoke about that on here before. You can't wow. do that. You just, you just, you just can't do that. I've never. It's a good point, you know, when you get totally cleaned up and then, um, yeah, when you feel good, you're just like, oh, I'm going news again. It amazes me people do it after they've done a heroin rattle. You know, yeah. Like, oh, I feel real good. Let's let's go get some heroin. <laughs> I feel great. And it's like, look what you just been through, man. It's fuck doing that one twice. Yeah, yeah. It's like, um, yeah. Have you ever read the story about Nikki Six, the guitarist from Motley Crue? I watched the movie. Okay. I haven't, um, well, haven't read his book. I bet his book's brilliant. Yeah, well, what, I mean, he, you know, he shoots up on heroin and he dies. And they bring him back. Yeah. And the first thing he does, he goes back to his apartment and shoots up again. <laughs> and he wakes up the next morning yeah. and the needle's hanging out of his arm. And he's like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing when you try and kill yourself and it doesn't doesn't work. That must be quite a profound um a profound experience because yeah. like like you said I, I don't i don't think anybody really wants to die they just want the pain to stop yes yeah yeah because honestly it's it's just like anything else if, if if you're going to commit suicide you don't tell anybody you just do it you know what i mean if you really want to die you just mm. you just go and do it it's when you tell somebody or you or or you prolong it deep down inside. You really, you really do want help. You just don't know how to ask for it. So you, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, if, if, if I had truly really wanted to hang myself, I just would have went downstairs and jumped off the bucket and hung myself. And my wife would have come down three minutes later and I would have been already hanging. I wanted to die but I was scared to kill myself, if that makes any sense. 
but I wanted the pain to go away ultimately. That's ultimately what I wanted to stop. I wanted the pain to go away. I didn't want to live my life like that anymore. Um, and I, I didn't know how to stop. I didn't know that recovery was possible. You know, that was the furthest thing from my mind was, was going to rehab and getting help. I didn't know that people could be sober and, and, and live their life without some type of substance because I had lived my life using for so long. And uh, to be able to be sober now every day and enjoy every moment of each day is a blessing because sobriety has been more than I could have ever imagined. Um, you know, they tell you all the time, you know, you can have fun in sobriety. And, I, and a lot of times I was like, there's no way. I mean, you, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't do anything to have fun. And now I've realized that the most fun that I've had has been these last 10 months. I remember shit. Um, you know, yesterday was the first Christmas I've had sober with all of my children. You know, my, my oldest is 23. I have a 14-year-old and a 10-year-old. It's the first Christmas I've had with my children sober. Wow. And, man, it was an awesome Christmas. I remember each present that they opened up. I remember all their smiles there are tears from the gifts that they really wanted to open up. And, and that has been such a blessing this year. And if that was the last good thing that was going to happen to me for this year, my, my year has been amazing. And I can't wait for this 2022 to come up because I have so much, I have big plans this year. I yeah. really do. I think you're going to do amazing things. I really do. Got a feeling. <laughs> I've just got a feeling that, you know, you're going to do something incredible. Well, so here's something. So you said that you really liked smoking pot before and the drinking was the thing that really was really fucking things up. Was there a part of you that was saying, maybe I'll just quit the booze and I'll keep smoking? You know, what What? What made it to the point where it's kind of like, no, I'm actually going to go teetotal, all of it's going to go, and I'm going to complete... Because it's always that thing where it's like, oh, but I need to just keep taking that thing to take the edge off, that thing that's going to relax me, you know? What's that thing? And, and to be like, okay, absolutely everything gone, nothing. I was like, what do you mean nothing? I can't have anything. What was that like? Well, that that's funny that you said that, 100%, man. When I came home <laughs> from rehab, my... See... I've smoked pot my pretty much my entire life since uh, since high school, except when I was in the Marine Corps and they drug tested. We couldn't do it. But from the day I got out, I just kept drink. I kept smoking and smoking and smoking. I mean, I, I actually had a little cannabis store down here in Washington, D.C. for two years. And uh, cannabis was my life for a very long time. So when I came home from rehab, I think that was actually harder for me to, to, uh, to withstand from than drinking because I have a dispensary right across the street from my house. I mean, I could walk across the street and get, get medical cannabis. And, uh, you know, my wife smokes. And uh, I was like, man, I can't smoke either. And she's like, Oh no, not really. I, I you know, you know what that's going to do. And I finally realized that, you know, if I'm going to be sober, just like everything else that I've done in my life, I'm going to do it a hundred percent. If, if I can't be sober and, and smoke pot, then that, that to me, that means I'm not sober. So I'm going to do complete abstinence from all my alternating chemicals or substances. And that's the only way I know that I could completely stay sober. If I start smoking pot again, there's only a matter of time before I go out and, and pick up a drink. Mm. Um, I just yeah. know it. I, I just know it because I, I I'll be smoking a joint or something and I'll be like, man, I feel really good. You know what really feel good right about now? A cold beer. 
And before I know it, I'd be drinking again. So I just made the conscious choice that I'm going to be a sober person now. And that's from everything. And, uh, yeah, I think if I smoked, man, I, I, I'd, I'd feel ashamed. I'd feel like I'm letting, letting something, I'd, I'd be letting myself down. So I just made that choice, man. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to be a sober person yeah. from here on out. It is like that. You know, it feels like you're giving your mind permission to use things to feel better. You know, like there's a quick fix for this. I'll just take this, just do that. And it's kind of like as soon as you give your mind permission to do that, it's just um, Pandora's box. You know, you've opened, yeah. you've opened the lid and, you know, it's like, what what now? You know, and your mind just... And I think that's one of the things that um, I learned through yoga is that all of these things actually give your give your mind power over you. So instead of you using your mind, your mind uses you as soon as you use any of these things. And, um, yeah, all of these substances, basically, I mean, if you, if you have to use something, you, you're not free, are you? Because as soon as your mind's telling you, oh, you need to go and get that thing to feel better, then you become a slave to doing that. So whether it's weed or alcohol or all those things, you're not actually free as long as you're getting told. It's like your mind's prodding you, like, go do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. Right. Not, that's not freedom, is it? No, you it's know, not. So if you actually want... And, and then that also means that you're not peaceful. You can't have peace because your mind's telling you you have to do it, you have to do it, you have to do it. So if you actually want peaceful, uh, serenity or peacefulness, you need to stop doing all of those things so your mind's not sending you nuts. Because once you actually do those things, get some distance from me, it just gets more and more peaceful. You can't be happy without peaceful peace, peacefulness, you know. So if you want to be happy, you, you can't do those things. And like you, you know, because those things with those chemical happinesses, as it comes, there's a high and then there's a low, and then there's a high and then there's a low, and then it gets like big, like you know, and it just kind of it gets lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. So it's um, yeah, that was kind of what I realized with you know, actually giving those things up. But my, dude, I remember, like, the idea of just, like, never doing anything again. That, that, the feeling that used to come over me when I used to think about that, the anxiety, the twisting yes. of the stomach, you know, and it's like, oh, never again. It's like, dude, like, I can't, how, you know, and, uh, yeah, I guess that's why it's one day at a time, you know, and you don't really think about trying to never do it ever again, I guess. Yeah, no, that's what I was just going to say. You know, in the beginning, I, I did say the same thing. Oh, my God, I can never drink again. I can never smoke again. <laughs> and, and now I tell myself I don't have to drink. I don't have to smoke again. So I'm, I, I, I changed my thought process. I changed my perspective on how I look at it. Because if not, I would dwell on it, and eventually I'd have anxiety. I'd have panic attacks. And... uh like you said, I, I would lose control of my thought conscious. And, you know, it's all about mind, body, and soul. And uh, I, I make sure I, I, I read. I make sure I go to the gym every day. I make sure I go to meetings. Um, and I make sure I read books. I try to stay as grounded as possible. Because um, you have to have, you have, to have a, a well-balanced sobriety. Uh, a well-balanced recovery. You have to be in, into a little bit of everything. Like you said, you did yoga. Yoga is awesome. I love yoga. Um, I, I love working out. I love doing my cardio. I love reading books. I like watching spiritual movies and, and uh, you know, just trying to stay in contact with, with a higher power has really made my life a lot more peaceful, 100%. And I'm not worrying about things yeah. all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice not to be worrying about things. I get a little bit too relaxed with some things. <laughs> I'm like, shit, I should worry about this one. I should get, I should worry about this one a little bit more. Cause then if I don't worry enough, then, you know, this, this problem pops out of nowhere. It's like, yeah, I should really save a bit more money for this thing that's coming up. I'm pretty terrible with that. I'm a bit too relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing, one thing that's like super cool about your recovery story is, uh, is your, the fact that the the guy that got you sober is Brandon Novak, um, and because he was uh, he's one of the Jackass uh, crew, isn't he? Yes. And he was always, you know, what well, I actually I actually learned that because he always used to do the the most unbelievably mental things, and I think the the craziest thing I ever saw on Jackass was him trying to go down the rolling on the toilet. Oh, yeah. Dude, dude who falls. Was, which was like, which was like, I don't know, it was like 10 metres to, to f face plant 
I, I can't. But then I actually learned um, uh, that he used to pick the gnarliest things to do because he was a heroin addict. And if he hurt himself, it meant that he got given painkillers, which he could justify using yep. without anybody telling them that he couldn't do it. And I was kind of like, that is such a fucked up thought process. Yeah, isn't that crazy how we <laughs> but, think? <laughs> that's exact. That's such an oh, addict man, but, behavior right there. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and even... And Bam said he was a kind of a no hoper. He would never get sober. And he's what he's doing now looks amazing. With what, what's what's going on with his house? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, three weeks ago, he just opened his second recovery house. Um, wow! And they're they're on the same street. They're right across the street from each other. And now he is able to uh, hold, uh, I believe, it's thirty two thirty two patients in recovery. Um. And he's doing amazing. Um, his programs are anywhere from three to six months long. They're not a 90 day. It's not a 60 day program or 30 day. Um, he, and, and it's not just getting sober. Um, he teaches you how to live in recovery. He teaches you to, and to give you the steps and the tools they need to, to get back into society, how to live your life without any absence uh, any any substance and uh you know it's it's amazing what he's been able to do and, and how he's been able to give back in his sobriety um after i mean we would party we, i have old pictures of us partying in high school together and uh it's just it's amazing now to see where he's at and, uh, you know, I, I, I owe him a lot to my sobriety. I really, truly do. Because if he wouldn't have called me that day, I don't know if I, I mean, I do know. I wouldn't be here talking to you right now. That's 100% true. I'd either be in jail or I'd be dead. And, uh, you know, I, I owe him a lot. Um, yeah, he's a really good friend of mine and and we we talk probably two or three times a week and uh he's busy as shit I, I it's hard for me to get a hold of him sometimes but mm. whenever he has a whenever he has a chance he'll text me back or he'll call me real quick just to say hey and and he tells me all the time i'll pick up my phone every once in a while it'll just be a message from him and he'll just say i'm i'm, I'm proud of you i love you um keep kicking ass and you know that uh, the fact that he takes time out of his busy schedule just to send me those messages is, is completely awesome. And um, you know, March fifth is my one year sobriety date, and he's he put it off to the side. He's going to come to my meeting on the March fifth when I speak, and hopefully he'll be the one that gives me my one year. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's so cool. What are you doing? Amazing. I mean, sometimes you do need that, like that real immersive, you know, this is how you live sober. This is what life is. This is, you know, and that kind of that, yeah, a chance to recover, you know, because like recovering by yourself in the world, it's hard, isn't it? You know, so actually having that that house where, you know, that gives you the opportunity to recover with people who uh, who, who get it. That's, yeah, that's incredible. I can't even imagine how much... Um, time that does actually take I've, I've got a few other questions sure. um one one thing that um i think you'll be able to give a perspective on that um you know i i really don't have a lot of perspective on is what's it like um you know having bipolar and, and addiction and how those can you speak to for anybody who has bipolar who's suffering for addiction what advice would you give to them if you have bipolar or any other type of mental disorder Please go see your doctor and please take the medicines that they are recommending for you to take. Take them as prescribed. Do not use while taking the medicines because they do not allow the medicines to work. I took bipolar medicine on and off my entire life. But every time I took them, I was drinking or drugging. And I never fully allowed the medicine to do what it was supposed to do. At 45 years old is the first time in my life 
that I'm taking my medicine that the doctor prescribed for me and I'm sober and I have felt the best I have ever felt. And it's because I have allowed the medicine to do what it's supposed to do. And I'm not on a lot of stuff. I take five milligrams of my bipolar medicine and then I take a hundred milligram, uh, Seroquel at night for my racing thoughts and stuff just to help me sleep and, and it's a very minimal it's a very minimal dose of what I'm taking but the fact that I'm not drinking or drugging it allows it to to connect to my brain receptors and allows it to do what it's supposed to do where if you're drinking or drugging and you have some type of mental illness and and you're not taking your medicine or you are but you're still using you're never going to get that full benefit of what those medicines are actually intended to do for you. You know, uh, bipolar is, is extreme highs and extreme lows. And I used to get off on it. I mean, I used to get off of, of, of going 100 miles an hour for five, six days in a row. I mean, I used to think it was cool. It was like almost taking drugs. Like I was so amped up that I wouldn't stop. I would just go do, do, do things. And then my lows, I, I, I'd lay in bed for a week or two. I wouldn't take a shower. I wouldn't brush my teeth. I wouldn't comb my hair. I wouldn't want to get up out of bed. I wouldn't want to do anything. And now I don't have to live my life in that complete opposite of a spectrum. I mean, life, as we know, it all, always is going to have ups and downs. But they don't have to be so extreme like a damn roller coaster. You know, they can be they mm. can be small hills rather than big mountains. Yeah, it's really interesting you said that because I I, I had an experience with. I think I just got to a point in life where I was like, you know, I've been on this roller coaster my whole life. I feel fucking sick. I feel dizzy. I want to get off it. I want to stop going up and down. I want to get off this thing, and have a break. And I realised that there's so many things in life that are putting me on that roller coaster. So, it's not just the drugs and the alcohol, but it's the way that I'm thinking. It's the things that I want. It's the people that I'm hanging around. It's all these things that are just, you know, causing me to be emotional or, you know, just causing drama and things. It's like I just want to get off that roller coaster and, you know, and actually experience some some peace. And um, when I made that choice, life changed. Because I guess I didn't make that choice even after I stopped using for a long time. There were still all kinds of things I was chasing. Right. I was a bit. I've been an adrenaline junkie my whole life. Extreme sports, and you know, always I was always chasing some some real high. All of all of all kinds of highs. Um, and, and yeah, once I chose to live a more peaceful life lifestyle, yeah, a lot of stuff changed after that. Yeah. Um, let's talk. Can we talk a little bit more about rock bottom because? You know, I th you say you've said that you you really went to the bottom floor, to the ground floor, and I guess you know, rock bottom. There's only like the as close as you can get before you decide to end it. You know, that's kind of as you had a, a few um, suicide attempts in your life. Did you have one suicide attempt or a few? You, you was pretty close quite a few times. How do do you think you need to go all the way to the ground floor, or do you think that you can, you know? Um, turn things around before that I think that depends on the person um, you know we all we all have that elevator right where, where some of us get off at, at on the 10th floor some of us get off at the 5th floor and some of us have to go to that basement and then some of us live under the basement I guess it just all depends on how far do you think you have to take it before enough is enough um, and some people die from the disease where they don't think enough is enough and, and until it's too late. Um, you know, my rock bottom, if I really think about it, I had a couple rock bottoms, you know, I, I, I lied, I cheated, I stole from my family. Um, you know, I, I had an affair with my wife, um, you know, I wrecked my vehicles, um, you know, I wrote bad checks. I was, I was facing jail time. I, I had, uh, you know, I, I went after a gentleman a couple of years ago cause he owed me money. I was facing five years in jail. 
You know, I had a lot of rock bottoms, but none of them, none of them got me to, to rehab. None of them said, I, oh man, this is where you should stop. It wasn't until that the, this last past year where things were getting so bad out of my control that I couldn't grasp it. They, they, they were, they were spiraling faster than I could hold on to. Sorry, guys, we've had a few technical difficulties. Hopefully that last part didn't get too badly cut off. Um, yeah, thanks for your patience, Tim. Um, have you got a final message that you'd like to share with people, please? Yes, don't give up hope. There's always help out there. You're not suffering from this disease of addiction by yourself. Many of us are suffering and we all think that we're alone and nobody knows the pain that we're going through. But the fact of the matter is there's a lot of us are going through the same depression and pain that, that you think nobody understands. But we need to help each other. We need to be there for each other. And the more we speak about it, the more that we could help each other to understand that you, know, you don't have to die from this disease. You know, living life of sobriety and recovery is possible if you truly want it. And the help is out there if you truly want it. Unfortunately, we had a few technical difficulties during the show. Um, I just wanted to say a massive thank you to Tim. Can't believe how patient he was. Um, he had to log in about 20 times during the show because it kept cutting out. Um, what an incredible story. Please follow Tim on Instagram at L-O-D-G-N underscore Tim. That's Lodgen underscore Tim. Or he's on Facebook as well, Tim Lodgen. Uh, yeah, thanks again, Tim. Listen to the show and hit subscribe to free yourself from the shackles of the mind. And if you find some benefit, please share it with a friend and let's make the world a better place together.